Exodus chapter 19 and far, as far as I'm concerned, is incredibly relevant because as we look around the world in which we live and we hear the theme of the day and we note the news that constantly rises to the surface, I think it is of utmost importance for us to return to foundational scripture. For us to restore our view of God to a biblical view of God. And God, perhaps never more in scripture, reveals his nature and his character and declares his expectation than here in the Ten Commandments. There is certainly nowhere else in scripture where our inability or incapacity to save ourselves or to have any righteousness or any merit for salvation in and of ourselves is completely decimated than here in the Ten Commandments. This is foundational. This is the principle of scripture that is applied to everyday life. We must comprehend how to view God. In each of the commandments, we learn something more about God. And and I'm starting in Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthy passage of Scripture. And I want you to really enter into the story with me. The children of Israel have been in bondage in Egypt for generations. Within about three months past, God miraculously freed the children of Israel from the clutches of the Egyptian people and the harsh rule of Pharaoh by the ten plagues. They have crossed the Red Sea and they have wandered through the wilderness. They have already been quarreling. They have already been complaining. Note that for hundreds of years and multiplied generations, they have lived in a pagan land. They have lived in a land of polytheism, many gods, pagan gods, gods of nature and celestial bodies, gods of creatures, and and all over the place, the true God has been denied. And now God has isolated, as it were, his chosen people unto himself. And I think of this in some ways as God introducing himself and his expectation to his people. And in that, we find incredible relevance. In Exodus 19, I'll begin reading here in verse 3. Listen into this story. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, And keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So God is having a conversation with Moses. Moses is a go-between, the children of Israel and God. He's going to go to the children of Israel and tell them what God said. He is going to return to God and tell them what the children of Israel said. Continuing in verse 7, And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, 
that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. Now just stay in this conversation with me. God says to Moses, here's something to say to the people. The people respond back to God, we will do what you have commanded us to do. Now God says back to Moses, Moses, I am going to come and talk to you and my presence is going to be visibly felt so that the people will know it is me that is talking to you and so they will believe you forever. I am going to do some physical things to make it very clear. Verse 10, and the Lord said unto Moses, go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and be ready Against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. Now if there was any reason to attend a Baptist church that's conservative, there it is. I've said thou shalt, and I've said you will be put to death. You've been churched, man. That's as Old Testament as I can get. We're stoning. All of it's in here. There shall not an hand touch it, verse 13, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man. It shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your Wives, this is a serious conversation that has just occurred between God and Moses. Moses, as the spokesman, has gone to the children of Israel and declared unto them God's expectation and intent. And Moses has gone to God and declared unto God the people's acquiescence and submission to his authority and his plan. Now, God has just delivered some amazingly impactful news. He has said to him very clearly, Moses, I am going to come on this mount and I am going to pay a visit to the children of Israel. And in order for the children of Israel to be ready for my arrival, there are some things that they must do. God is preparing to communicate his law to the children of Israel. These 10 commandments that God is going to articulate very clearly are going to be historically foundational to all of civilization. These are things that even people who don't know the Bible well are familiar with. And when we in this day and age think about the law of God, I'm certain that it stretches our capacity to see it as relevant at all. When I say the law of God, what am I trying to accomplish? Do you realize that the Bible has much to say about the law of God? In the New Testament, James, the writer, compares the law of God to a mirror. And in effect, he says to us, you must look into the mirror and see your reflection. Now, I'm going to read it, and I want you to listen to what he says. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, a guy looking in a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The law reveals this standard to us. 
I would venture to say that no one that has gathered in this room is currently in the state that they were in when their feet first hit the floor this morning. How many of you made an effort to get ready for church? I'm saying everybody. Now, we all could admit we've seen you. Some of you could have gone a little further, tried a little harder. You know, hey, there's 52 Sundays in a year. Next week, try again. All of us comprehend what it is to look at our reflection and make adjustments that are necessitated by viewing what actually is. And James in the New Testament says, one of the uses of the law of God is it is a mirror. You are going to see the standard of God and you will see your reflection in it and you must make changes based on what you see. I know that the Apostle Paul talked about it as a school teacher. A schoolmaster, he said to the believers that are in Galatia, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Now get this, this means wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law reveals, like a schoolteacher, our ineptness at saving ourselves. Our inability or incapacity to mediate with God and it teaches us that we must come to Christ and be justified by faith. When I say the law of God and teach in the coming weeks, I am not saying to you that the law can justify from sin because the law cannot justify from sin. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, we read this, be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, that is Jesus. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. I'm not preaching the Ten Commandments and saying, now be a good boy or a good girl and obey every one of these commandments to the nth degree so that you can be justified from your sins. The law cannot justify us from our sins. Neither can the law give us righteousness. The law cannot grant unto us righteousness. Again, Paul was writing in Galatians 2 and he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And Christ is certainly not dead in vain. Righteousness can only be ascribed to us through the finished work and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The law cannot grant us righteousness. The law cannot justify us from sin. The law cannot give us peace. The writer of Hebrews says, which was a figure. For the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. That's a lot of Bible. But he's speaking of the old sacrificial system and he's saying though these things were carried out, they could not silence that inner scream. They could not fill that inner void. They could not ultimately bring peace because in our sinful state, we are at enmity with the holy God and only Jesus and his shed blood and finished work can broker peace between us and a holy God. He is the giver of peace. The law cannot justify from sin. The law cannot grant righteousness. The law cannot give peace. Okay, pastor, then why study the law of God? Because it is the revelation of the character of God. 
We have to look in this mirror. We have to listen to this teacher. We have to see ourselves in light of the word of God. We have to be able to filter what is going on in our world through the foundational principles, unchanged principles of scripture. And we have to be ready for the Lord. That's what this entire passage is about. God is trying to get Moses to have the children of Israel to be ready for his arrival. Those very words are used in the 11th verse. Be ready against the third day. Today is Mother's Day. How many of you stress about Mother's Day? Nobody. Everybody loves Mother's Day. No one raises their hand. I don't know why I go through this charade. It just makes me look like I'm the inept one. You know, that guy apologizes the entire service. Yes, I use myself as a reference point of futility and failure for your enjoyment. You know that Mother's Day is May 8th, and knowing that Mother's Day is May 8th, if you are a husband or you are a child, you feel some sense of pressure to be ready against Mother's Day. That's the Bible phraseology. I have to be ready for Mother's Day. Now, that may mean a myriad of things, but it certainly means I must be prepared. And what God is saying to Moses is this, I am coming to Mount Sinai. And in your current condition, you are not ready for my presence. And so you must go deliver to the people these mandates so that they can be ready for my presence. And by the way, I'm coming in three days. If you and I had that kind of countdown, we would have a sense of urgency, I have no doubt. So what if I'm Moses? Am I going to tell the children of Israel, hey, God's coming to the mount, so be ready what does be ready mean? He clarifies it in verse 10 when the Lord said unto Moses, go unto the people and sanctify them. That's another really good Bible word. The Hebrew word that is used there communicates, have them be ceremonially clean. Have them be purified. Have them to be set apart unto sacred or holy use. Distance from that which is profane and dedicated to that which is holy. It is requiring some real practical implementation, some real purification, and it is requiring a preparation of hearts. So what in the world are they trying to be ready for and how do they get their hearts in the right place? I've tried to make it as simple as I possibly can to set the table for the study of the Ten Commandments. And we know that God is coming, and he's coming in a visible fashion so that we will sense the severity of what is communicated. Moses is attempting to ready the children of Israel to hear from God, and here's what he is saying to them in effect as God teaches him what to speak. Remember who's doing the speaking. Back in verse 3, God was beginning his conversation, and in verse 4, God not wanting his words to fall on deaf ears, begins with a review of what he has done for the children of Israel. And he begins by saying to them in verse 4, you saw it's only been about 90 days. You remember vividly what I did to the Egyptians. And you study those 10 plagues, it is cataclysmic. It is miraculous. And then he says this, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. That is incredibly vivid imagery, is it not? God likens himself 
unto a mother eagle that took these fledgling flyers, rescued them from bondage in Egypt, and has brought them out here to this deserted wasteland of a wilderness. Like a mother eagle, he has borne them on his wings. And this phrase is beautiful. And I have brought you unto myself. I don't have you out here in the wilderness because I'm taking punitive action against you and so I have brought you to a barren wasteland. I have heard all of your quarreling. I've heard all of your complaining. I've witnessed all of your faithlessness. But you must remember, before I ever lay down one commandment, remember who's speaking. Before I ever say thou shalt not or thou shalt You must remember who's doing the speaking. And I'm the one that freed you from Egypt. I, like a mother eagle, bore you on my wings out to this place to bring you unto myself. That's a beautiful phrase. Too often, we think that God has called us only to serve him. He has called us to be devoted to him. And sometimes our service for him actually diminishes our devotion to him because we make that cheap exchange too often. God is saying to the children of Israel, I have brought you unto me. That's a beautiful phrase. Do you realize that in the New Testament, similarly, To Exodus 19, we hear the Apostle Peter talk about Christian people. Now, I just want you to try to see this mirrored. In Exodus chapter 19, we read this in verse 5. Ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and unholy nation. Now, don't get lost in all of that. But I want you to listen to what Peter says in the New Testament about believers about individuals who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Here's the description of them in 1 Peter 2.9. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, unholy nation, a peculiar people. Isn't that interesting how that mirrors Exodus 19? Now listen to this. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I could make this like a seminary class, and some of you are like, you are, and I'm not trying to, I'm trying to simplify it. If then, that's what we read in Exodus 19, 5, 6. That means it's conditional. If you, then I. And in 1 Peter, Peter says, you have been separated unto me. You belong to me. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, the precious shed blood of Jesus Christ. You have been redeemed. Now, as a believer, your purpose is to show forth, to show out, to make manifest to this world, you're praising me as your heavenly father. Now, all of that communicates to me this. When God lists the Ten Commandments, we often think of them in the context of aggressive, punitive, angry action. But before he ever gives one commandment, he is saying this all comes from a heart of love. This all comes from amazing grace and amazing mercy. I brought you out of Egypt. I bore you on eagle's wings. I brought you unto myself. Therefore, any mandate that I deliver is your ability to show my praises to this world for what I have done to you. Listen, some of the rules that we shrink from Some of the distinctions that we try to blur 
are actually ways of showing praise to God. We must remember who's speaking whenever this is communicated. It comes from a place of love. Not only that, he teaches us this, to revere him for who he is. Now, I think this is interesting scripture. Because in verse 10, that's where the Lord tells Moses to go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. Now, that's incredibly sexist and misogynistic, but I say like that maybe that's the Mother's Day element to the sermon. I don't know. Send emails to tim.souza at gracewayscharlotte.org. Ah, I always go a bridge too far, and there it was. And be ready against the third day. And here's what he says. The Lord is going to come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. Now, time out. We're studying together. That's all we're doing. And he has just said, The one who is about to communicate the Ten Commandments to you Views these not as punitive action. I am declaring unto you my nature, and my nature is holy. And it comes from a heart of love. I bore you like a mother eagle on my wings. I have brought you unto myself. My desire is communion with you. And in the next phrase, he says, but don't touch the mountain or you'll die. Don't come near me or you're going to be stoned or shot through with an arrow. And we seem a little perplexed or confused. How can a God of grace, from a place of mercy and amazing compassionate love that rescues and redeems, also expect this level of reverence because that's who he is? Why would the individual be put to death for touching the mountain? Is God cruel? No. He is impressing upon them the reality that he is creator and they are creature. And this mountain, in a sense, is the place that he dwells in. And God was very serious about keeping that distance. Set yourself apart. Focus on hearing what I have to say and make a very clear distinction between what I'm saying and your everyday ordinary conversation. And while you're at it, wash your clothes. Doesn't that seem like a sidebar? They were to take practical steps to differentiate from the everyday. They were to make distinct. They were to cleanse themselves ceremoniously and practically by washing their clothes. In verse 15, he throws this in there, and come not at your wives. Practice abstinence. I don't want you to indulge in anything in this time period that may distract you as wonderful and as God-given as it may be from what I have to say. I want you to revere me as I should be revered, holy. I want you to listen to me, not like this is an everyday ordinary conversation. I want you to distinguish these words as different. This teaches me that meeting with God and hearing from God requires personal preparation. An undivided heart and an undivided mind. Not allowing anything else, no matter how blessed it may be, to distract us from hearing from God. Does it strike you, as it does me, how different we are today? When we begin listing the Ten Commandments, it will be stunningly relevant. And I also think each of us will probably hear it as a scathing rebuke. Because he tells us from the onset... You should not have any other God before me. 
Nor should you in any way, shape, or form try to take your image of me in your human mind, your fallen mind, and carve me into some image or mold me into some God that aligns with your expectations and your imaginations. And then he'll go far enough to say, and don't take the name of your Lord in vain. Don't misuse my name. Don't even speak my name in an empty fashion. It is going to blow your mind how relevant these are. And I'm not saying that if you fulfill the commandments, you'll be saved. I'm saying, in effect, if you are saved, you will reflect fulfillment of these commandments. Because this is God's expectation, that we be distinct. And he is impressing and impressing and impressing upon us that we should not flippantly enter into the presence of God. We really shouldn't even sing songs with a hypocritical heart, lifting up words of worship that we do not mean. That's vanity. We should not try to think of God as a, as a bellboy in heaven who's waiting for us to ding the bell of prayer so that he can busy himself responding to our immediate need. He's not some distant genie that when we rub the lamp and throw out a wish, he'll respond to it. He is saying, don't make me into any image. I am God and I am God alone, and you should revere me in that way. Don't flippantly approach me. You say, now, pastor, hold on a second. I have read in the New Testament that we may boldly go before the throne of grace, and certainly we can. And I am thankful for the age of grace, and I want you to understand that when we boldly go in prayer to the throne room of our Abba Father in heaven, and we make our requests known unto him, he readily answers them. That's what he has told us. But when we go in there, we don't go in there on our own merit or our righteousness. We know that Jesus Christ is our advocate. And we know that Jesus Christ is interceding on our behalf at all times. And we can be purified from our sin by confessing. And when we offer up our request to our Father God, we do so in the name of Jesus, declaring his righteousness and not ours. I would say this, yes, we can boldly go into the throne of grace. But I fear that we do too flippantly. I fear that we gather together in a place like this and we just assume that God's going to do. Not preparing our hearts. We don't realize how divided our hearts and our minds are. We don't realize how woefully short we fall of the expectation of God. I, I have a daughter who's going to turn 20. Someday she's going to have a guy who wants to marry her. I look forward to that moment. Not because I want to get rid of my daughter, but because I look forward to toying with the emotions of this boy. That's what I look forward to. I want him to sheepishly come up to me. I want to take him into a side room. I want to like silently sit until it's just terribly awkward. I want to say things that make him think, I'm not right. And I might not be in that moment, to be honest. Some of you dads who've crossed this bridge are like, no, I've been there. It's, it's a good thing. <laughs> what I want in that moment is to have some air of austerity. I want to, I want to, I don't know what I could, I won't say arm myself with that might make me more intimidating, but I want him to come into the room with an awareness that he should win my affection, that he should esteem my position. 
that his spirit should be in that moment somewhat humble and submissive because he desires something from me if at that moment it is only approval. And what I want you to comprehend is this. Though we may boldly go to the throne of our heavenly father, God, who loves us deeply and dearly, we must also do so humbly and submissive, esteeming him greatly. We must not flippantly go before God. It is a devastating thing to not go to God in respect. In fact, by the time we get to verse 16, right after we finished reading, God shows up on the third day. And the Bible says this, and there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. We're not confused as to the reaction of the children of Israel at the visible, audible presence of God. The blast of the trumpet causes them to tremble. As we read on in verse 17, and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. Now again, that's a whole lot of Bible, I know. But the mountain is quaking, God is present in the form of fire, the whole mountain is a smoke, and like a furnace, this smoke is shooting straight back up into heaven. Moses has been summoned by God's voice, and the trumpet is waxing louder and louder, and Moses goes up. Now be careful, because we might be prone to think, I bet Moses felt like the boss of all the children of Israel, and he strutted up and strode up that mountain full of confidence. You would be woefully errant in your thinking. The writer of Hebrews says this, talking about this moment in the past, he says, And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now this is Moses who has communed with God. This is Moses whom God used to carry out the human implement of the plagues. This is Moses who has led them. This is Moses who knows God as a God of grace, mercy, and compassion. And this Moses said, and yet when I was on that mount, exceedingly I was afraid and my joints were loose. I was shaking. The writer of Hebrews sums this scene up by writing this, wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, Let us have grace, and by this grace, serve God acceptably. How? With reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Is God love? Yes. Is God a consuming fire? Yes. How can we expect our sinful state to ever appease God's holiness and righteousness. We cannot. Our God is a consuming fire. Our hearts need to change in accordance with who God is. And in short order, humanity will fall. 
By the time we get to Exodus chapter 32, God has to tell Moses, get down off the mount. The people have quickly turned aside. The people have quickly turned aside and they are following after other gods. Humanity is prone to failure. And God knows that. That's why when we arrive at the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can have salvation, but it's not your definition of salvation. You can come to God, but only God's way. The Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy and he said, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. He wants all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. You can be saved. There is mercy. You cannot uphold these commandments and the punishment for failing to uphold any one of these commandments individually is death. And honestly, we've broken all 10, if only in our hearts. We were born with a sin nature. Our default setting is separation from a holy God. We desperately need mediation. And God loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus. And it is his desire that all men would be saved. It is his desire that all men know the truth. And the truth is there is one God and all men are sinners And there is only one mediator between God and sinful man, and that's Jesus. And anything else falls woefully short. Don't miss the point. You need a God-appointed mediator to approach him. God is holy, and we are sinful. Any approach or attempt at it to get to God by our own merits or good deeds ends with us perishing on the day of judgment, but Jesus Long before we ever unearth one commandment, which seems like antiquated legality, we realize that in the nature of God and the revelation of his character, there are relevant and eternal principles that we are going to learn. And perhaps the greatest corrective step we could take in this era is if I don't know Jesus then I must humble myself in the presence of a holy God. I must be aware of the fact that no matter what, I cannot close the gap between his holiness and my sinfulness but Jesus. And as a believer, I must realize I am set apart. And yes, I can boldly go to the throne of grace, but my confession is I am so surface. I am so flippant in my approach to God. I come to a service and I offer up worship, and if I'm honest, it's vanity. I offer up service as some external attempt to satiate something inside of me that should be devotion and reverence to a holy God. I treat God like a bellboy or a genie in some distant place. I allow myself to be mired in sin all week long and just expect at my beck and call that God will turn and do my bidding. The fact is, if we're going to approach God, it requires reverence. And if we're guilty of anything in this day and age, I don't think it's over-revering a holy God, but rather flippantly approaching God in a God-dishonoring way. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. 
We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.